From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The Soviet propaganda tried to present an image of the bright future. It was a fake but positive image of the future. Putin's propaganda is different. It's more like cult of death. It's not about positive future. Actually, there's no future at all. That's Garry Kasparov. He's the best chess player who ever lived, an advocate for human rights, and a staunch critic of Vladimir Putin. So here's why I was dying to talk to Garry Kasparov on the show. He's got an incredible mind, and that's obvious from the way he's played chess for years and years. But his incredible mind is also at play when he talks and thinks about democracy, uh, the press, truth, uh, and human rights, which is what he's dedicating his life to now. And what I thought was cool about this interview is as I ask him questions, some of which were not really perfect questions, as he pointed out, you can literally hear his brain working in real time. That's coming up, but first, your questions. So obviously, the biggest piece of news in the last week has been the guilty plea of Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor for President Trump. I tried to anticipate a lot of questions that have been lobbed about by doing a special episode this past Monday. So if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go and check it out. But I wanted to just follow up on that for a moment here on the Thursday episode. So when I laid out the three possibilities that I thought made sense in the special episode on Monday, I was not saying that nothing further will happen with other defendants. It may happen. But I was saying that you have to accept the possibility that the case with respect to Michael Flynn is done, and they don't have more against him, and that's going to be it. I guess the main point on this score is that for those people who think there's going to be a future charge against other people, and Michael Flynn will be sitting in the witness stand, like in the catbird seat, having pled guilty only to this narrow lying to the FBI charge, I find that very, very hard to believe. So either they're done with Flynn, and that's it, or later there'll be charges against folks, and Flynn will probably have to take some responsibility for those things too. But look, with respect to all of this, as my family tells me on an almost daily basis, I could be completely wrong. This is just my best analysis given what I know, what I've seen, and what I've read. Hi, Preet. This is Christy Hoover, and I'm calling from rural Indiana. My question for you is about the role of intent. I've heard it said that what determines whether or not Trump committed obstruction comes down to his intent. What's the legal methodology of determining intent, regardless of Trump's intent for those on the receiving end of his comments who may feel pressured by what he says, given that he's the president of the United States? Doesn't that power differential automatically make those interactions not just inappropriate, but actions that could absolutely obstruct justice, regardless of intent? Thanks, Chrissy, from rural Indiana. That's actually a great question and an issue, I think, that gets lost in all of this. For a lot of different kinds of crimes, including crimes of obstruction, what's in the mind of the person who you seek to accuse is absolutely essential and critical. So you can't prove a crime simply on the basis that someone was fired or someone was pardoned or a sanction was repealed or a particular bill was supported or an op-ed was published. You know, all of those things come within the norm of legal conduct. What matters, though, is what the intent was. And when trying to figure out what the intent of someone was when they took a particular action, you look at everything. You look at the action itself. 
You look at the circumstances, you know, the power dynamic sometimes. You look at the emails. You look at their tweets, if those are relevant. Um, you look at the conversations that might be revealed to you between that person and others. And you put that all together. And sometimes you can get a very good picture of what was intended. And sometimes you can't. And when you have to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, it takes some effort to make sure that you're on track. We don't know in a very significant way the things that Bob Mueller has pulled together. Maybe he's pulled together a huge amount of, of evidence of the type I've described about people's states of mind, but maybe it was hard to come by. And with respect to some people, he can do it, and with others, he can't. You'll see that the, the two charges that have already been proven because they've been admitted to against Michael Flynn and George Papadopoulos had to do with lies. It's a form of obstruction. Um, their intent matters as well because you have to show that the misstatement, the statement that was not true, was intended to be made knowing it was not true. In other words, it wasn't a mistake and it wasn't a, a function of forgetfulness. But the, the straightest line to a type of obstruction charge is often the false statement. And it remains to be seen how many other people, by the way, who are in the ambit of the Russia investigation made the same mistake that George Papadopoulos and Michael Flynn made. And sometimes intent can be inferred from the words spoken by the potential target and use of your common sense. There was a great analogy given by one of my prior guests, Ben Wittes, who you should continue to follow and you should continue to listen to his podcast as well. But he said, look, if a guy's standing in front of your house and he's looking at it and he says, that's a really nice house, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. If that person is an insurance adjuster, well, then that's legitimate and you don't think anything nefarious is going on in that person's mind. If that person is a mobster who thinks that you owe him a debt, well, then that sounds like a threat. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a far-fetched example, but I think a good one that illustrates how different words can mean different things in different circumstances. And so your point is well taken. You know, when Donald Trump is a really powerful person and he asks people to do things, that signals something different from when an ordinary person says those things. But, you know, you have to combine that kind of thinking, gathering of evidence and logic with other things that we don't know about that are being put together as well. Alpreet, this is Mike in Virginia, and I have a question about President Trump's options. What if he decided he wanted to get out, that it's too much on his family or whatever? Would he have the option to pardon anybody and everybody that he wants to protect and then immediately resign from the presidency? Is that an exit strategy that he might employ? Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Mike in Virginia, thanks for that question. So I think it's been established now and everyone's been talking about it. It's very clear in the Constitution that the president basically has the unfettered right to pardon anyone in connection with federal law, a violation of federal law. So if there's a state law that's been violated, he can't pardon someone. Uh, and I have, like I think a lot of people do, a real concern that Donald Trump may decide to pardon people before finding out what's going to happen to them. It could be with respect to Michael Flynn. It could be George Papadopoulos. It could be others. It could be uh, any one of a number of people. And when I say that, that's not coming out of thin air. We have already seen that Donald Trump is prepared to use his pardon power in an extraordinary and in recent times unprecedented way. For example, he pardoned the controversial sheriff in Arizona, Joe Arpaio. And what was unusual about that is that process had not finished yet. Um, you know, the proceedings were still underway. He bypassed completely 
the normal process through the Justice Department. When I was a U.S. attorney, we dealt with a lot of pardon applications and commutation applications. And the normal process, it's not required by the Constitution, but it's the guideline and it's a normal process that's put in place for good reason. And that is there's actually someone at the Department of Justice who's called the pardon attorney. And that person has a staff of individuals who look through, vet, make a recommendation on the appropriateness of a pardon. And obviously the president can reject that recommendation uh, or accept that recommendation, but there's a process that's followed so that the president in modern times has the benefit of the analysis from intelligent people um, who know what the precedents are, who understand what the equities are, and not only those people, but the folks who were initially involved in the prosecution itself. And so often the opinions of the underlying prosecutors and even the judge in the underlying case is sought and respected and listened to. None of that was followed, even though it didn't have to be. None of that was followed in the case of the pardon of Joe Arpaio, which was fairly controversial and caused a lot of blowback. And I'm not saying that that necessarily means Donald Trump is going to do something further with respect to pardons. You know, Maybe he's pardoned out. I don't know. But it gives you a sense of how he views his own pardon power um, and he views his exclusive ability to exercise his pardon power and he's not that worried at all about controversy over his pardon power. So I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's a reasonable concern to have. Second, when you say is that a strategy he could use, pardon a lot of people close to him and then resign, I don't know why he needs to resign actually. He could pardon all the folks he wants and there might be political blowback and there might be uh, proceedings in Congress and maybe protests in some streets. But he can do that under the Constitution and remain in office until some process is underway to remove him. Here's a question from Twitter. So there was a conversation this week between two users on Twitter that I got dragged into. Uh, first, Twitter user Aaron S. Cafe in Los Angeles wrote, quote, with everything going on, I think we've overlooked the offensive usage of pled versus pleaded. Then Twitter user Joe Thomas responded, quote, on Preach Podcast, I've noticed he says, pled, close quote. Now, I will confess, I don't know that there's formal usage directive on this point. My recollection is when I used to stand up in court and recite that someone had done that thing, I would say they had, they had pled guilty. It uses fewer letters. It's shorter. It's better for, um, among other things, Twitter. So I've been told in real time that they may both be technically correct and that pled is gaining some traction in recent times, but I guess the controversy will rage on. My guest this week is retired chess master and human rights advocate Gary Kasparov. We recorded this conversation a couple of weeks ago before the charges against Michael Flynn and his guilty plea were announced, but one of the things that Gary said that struck me was his theory about the relationship between Michael Flynn Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And you'll see that he sort of nails the issue in advance of any of us knowing that Michael Flynn was going to plead guilty to a particular lie that he told the FBI. Now that we know a little bit more about that, it makes Gary Kasparov seem even smarter. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let me say a big welcome to my guest on this week's program, Gary Kasparov. Thanks for inviting me. 
So you're known for a lot of things, but the thing you're known for most is for being perhaps the best chess player in the history of the world. I'm sure you're tired of hearing that. Are you tired of hearing that? Yes, absolutely. No, you're not. No, okay, fine. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've retired long ago, so uh, that's why it's uh, it's a glorious part of my life. But I, I'm, I'm quite happy that uh, I managed to have um, orderly transition. And uh, now I hope people can recognize me for doing other things, not okay. only being the former world chess champion. Before we get to the other things, I want to just stick on chess for a couple of minutes. Go ahead. We had lunch a few weeks ago, and we, we talked about chess a little bit. When did you know that you were good at that game? Your question is, is, is a bit... Vague, Bad question. Vague because what do you mean good? Uh, everybody could see that I was good at it uh, when I just learned how to play chess because I could uh, compete with uh, with my relatives and then at age seven I could play well against all the kids uh, in the Pioneer Palace in the chess section in Baku. Uh, if you mean good as the very strong chess player prodigy, probably age nine, ten, good of being a potential world champion, age 13, 14. When did you start playing? Uh, probably I was six, but uh, nobody was there to tweet this news. Nobody was. Donald Trump wasn't there tweeting your No, no, no. Just well, and it was just, it's, uh, it was a winter evening, year 68, 69. I just watched my parents trying to solve some chess problems and I got um, infatuated with, with, with the game. And that's, that was the greatest moment. So I was, I, by the way, I was very lucky that I just discovered chess at that early age because that's where I could uh, show the greatest uh, talent. I have to be thankful to my mother who uh, spent her life, dedicated her life to me after my father died. I was seven and she never married. And uh, from her, I learned how to work hard. You have to work. And if you fail, you just, you know, you keep going on. So um, it's all up to you to make the difference. So if not you, who else? That was the her motto that was on, on top of my bed. She also... Um, convinced me that the game of chess was not just about winning, but it's about making the difference. How is playing chess about making a difference? Oh, uh, when you play chess, it's just it's 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 about finding something something new, uh, just new openings, new ideas in the middle game. Uh, chess is not just a sport; it's also an art and a science. So there's plenty of room for discoveries. And I was not just the best player in eighties and nineties and the beginning of the twenty first century, uh, but also I was most advanced pioneer, explorer, because I always wanted to find something new. So it's just to push the horizons, to come up with new ideas. And it's also important because this is the way you can stay on top. Because staying on top is also dangerous since, you know, you don't have opponents, you beat all of them, and you can easily um, lose the sense, sense of danger. It's uh, uh, what I call the gravity of past success. Uh, the reason I could survive it for such a long time is because I always believed that I have to fight my own excellence. So just fighting your own excellence gives you a good reason to come up with new ideas all the time. Fighting your own excellence is a luxury problem to have. Uh, look, it's luxury, but it's many people failed by being on the top. They just they lost this sense of competition and uh, they became easy prey for other competitors. And uh, I always thought that it's not enough to win a new game with an old technique. So you always have to come up with new ideas to be at a cutting edge and to make sure that you always have something in your sleeves to surprise your opponents. You say you're retired from the game of chess, but you still play chess. I, I hate telling you that. It's, it's, we, we, have to, we have to agree on definition. For me... <laughs> okay, look, play, no, for man me, after no, my own heart. No, no. For, for me, playing chess means playing chess professionally. So that's why I can tell you 
I've retired uh, in 2005. Since that time, I played many simultaneous games, fun games, uh, exhibition games, but I retired from professional chess. So when people say, oh, Gary's just is making comeback. No, I just, I, I do it for fun. For me, it's, uh, it's having chess vacation. It's just, it's for fun. So I'm the, I'm probably the strongest amateur on the planet <laughs> these days. Not probably, I'm the strongest amateur on the planet. No, don't hold back. But why retire? So in other, in other kinds of sports, if you're a pitcher, you get old. If you're a runner, your legs don't move as fast. I assume your brain works just as well in the chess way. Why, why retire? No, uh, uh, first of all, let's, you know, let's, uh, uh, let's make it clear. Your brain is not functioning as fast as when you're 20 or 25. But the big issue is this, you know, while you're aging, you have other things to concentrate on. So you have your family, you have other things, and your concentration is no longer same crystal clear as it used to be when you were a teenager or you were in 20s or even in the 30s. For me, to retire at age 41, still being number one rated player in the world, uh, was part of, of, of my belief that it was not just about winning, but about making the difference. And I thought at that time that I, I've made more than I could ever dream in the game of chess. So why not do other things uh, uh, and just to try to reinvent myself? Still being in the early 40s, I had plenty of energy, and I believe that the world could offer me a few opportunities to invest my knowledge, my experience, my analytical skills, um, my reputation. I'm quite happy that over the last 12 years, I managed this transition uh, just to establish myself as, as a human rights activist, as, as a writer, as a speaker. It's, it's a new life. It still has plenty of chess because I keep promoting the game of chess through Kasparov Chess Foundation. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a new life, and it's, I think it was a very good decision. Last question about chess. Before you retired professionally, you actually had a non-human opponent. You played a computer. In Quite a few, by the way. You had one that was of considerable acclaim, where you played Deep Blue in 1996. You beat the computer. Why did you agree to do that match? I'm still thinking, sometimes just in the middle of the night, so whether uh, it was my curse or my blessing speaking about machines. So it's when I became world champion in 1985, machines were laughingly weak. I played simultaneous exhibition against uh, 32 computers at that time and won all the, all the games, 32 games. When I retired from professional chess in 2005, machines were virtually unbeatable. I was a world champion in this period and I, I still think it was my blessing that I was the world champion at that time, historic moment, very narrow window where machines could compete with humans. And that's by, that's by the way, it happens everywhere. It's not only in chess. It's a classical algorithm. So uh, it starts with, oh, it's impossible. Then machines are too weak to compete. We're still laughing at them. Then it's real competition. And then machines are far superior forever after. In many other human occupations, we'll see the same phenomena. But chess was one of the first ones. You mentioned 1996. I won the match. I thought it was important for the world champion not to duck the challenge. So uh, the choice was I could be beaten. So I had the risk of being the first one to be beaten or I had the risk of being the first one who ducked the challenge. So for me, it was not a choice. For your audience, I can give a piece of trivia that a free chess app on your mobile uh, device is stronger than the blue. I want to move on and talk about Russia. We talk about Russia a lot in this country these days and the relationship with Putin. Actually, you, you know, American TV 
you can hear much more about Russian on the Russian TV. Right. <laughs> I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's <laughs> because, right. Because Putin doesn't want Russian TV to talk about Russia since the situation is so bad. That's why on Russian TV, they talk about America as, of course, arch enemy and about anything else, anything but Russia. <laughs> right. But before I get, we talk about Putin, and I know you have some views, and you're not a fan. One day, eventually soon, we're going to have a Putin fan on the show, but we're having some trouble finding one. Oh, I'm sure we can find one, but... Uh, they may I'm, not come on the show. Yes, yes. The president, for example. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what, you know, we hear a lot about the Russian government, and, you know, most people have not had a chance to go to Russia. What's life like for an average Russian? And what does the average Russian think about America and Americans? Today. Today. Look, I, I live in exile for nearly five years, for an obvious reason. Uh, my mother still lives, lives there, so uh, that's why I have some first-hand information She's 80, uh, and um, she was born in the Soviet Union, so she lived under Stalin, under Khrushchev, under Brezhnev, uh, Andropov, uh, Gorbachev, Yeltsin. So she heard everything. So, And uh, she tells me that uh, today it's even worse than and in Stalin's or Brezhnev's years because the Soviet propaganda, though people could see through, some of them could see through, but it tried to present an image of the bright future. So yes, we have some difficulties now, but eventually we'll, you know, we'll build communism. We'll build a society where everybody will enjoy equal rights and we have everything there. There will be some abundance of food and, and opportunities. It was a fake but positive image of the future. Putin's propaganda is different. It's more like cult of death. It's not about positive future. Actually, there's no future at all. It's all about Russia being the besieged fortress surrounded by the, by the global evil. And he, Vladimir Putin, is the only savior of Mother Russia from its multiple enemies. Uh, it's poisonous. It's, it's totally brainwashing. And it's, it has no positive uh, substance. Does the average Russian citizen buy it? I think that it's, it's the many are buying it because you have to find an explanation for why your life is, is, is getting worse. So it's the intellectual, psychological drug. So people can take it in just not to see the reality. If we move from sort of average Russians from countryside to, to the more advanced social tiers in Moscow or St. Petersburg, here um, the situation is different because it's not just channel one or channel two, the simple, you know, primitive propaganda. Uh, we have to give Putin and his cronies credit for developing a very new type of propaganda. They developed great technique in, in, in selling this message in Russia by taming uh, the minds of, of intelligent people because the whole concept is simple. Truth is relative. Putin is more like merchant of doubts. Oh, yes, we're corrupt, but everybody is corrupt. Right. What about Yes, we're bad, but what exactly? This is what about ism. They managed to actually become the top professionals by doing it in Russia. Then they moved from Russia to the Russian-speaking neighborhood, the former Soviet Union, uh, the Baltics, the Ukraine, then to Eastern Europe, Western Europe. And of course, eventually, they ended up in the United States. They have been prepared already. So what Americans experienced uh, during the last election season, that was a technique that has been polished throughout years in Russia or in Russian-speaking countries. So that's why the troll factories, they have been already uh, fully armed to play the same role as they did, did in my country, even in the United States. So it's no longer like the days of Pravda, where you had one state-sponsored news organizations that only said positive things. Now, I've seen some of your writing on this. There are multiple news outlets, some of which 
in some instances, are permitted to criticize absolutely, to absolutely. give them credibility. Exactly, exactly. Because they have to build credibility. Since they have, as you pointed out, since they have many channels, they can afford to, to empower these channels with negative stories. They can criticize Putin. So you immediately see, the, that, see that this channel is credible. But it has a story to sell. And then another channel sells another piece of story. It's very hard for even for advanced audience to actually follow it because they're so quick. And again, remember, truth is relative. To, to show you the uh, some paradoxical uh, situations uh, in Russia, that the same evening, two different channels on Russian TV presented two different versions of the MH17 being shot. One is by Ukrainian missile, one is by Ukrainian military jet. So you say, how come? Who cares? It's all about different versions. Some people heard this one. Some people heard that one. We don't know what's happened. Right. It's not. It's not about pushing forward a particular truth. No. It's about. It's about making people believe you can't trust in any truth. Exactly. This is. It's, it's destroying the very notion of truth. Uh, and of course, it aims at the democratic institutions because if if nothing is is true, then everything is relative. So what's the difference between democracy and dictatorship? They're all bad. Everybody is corrupt. And you cannot take seriously even open democratic competition during the elections or the free press is not a free press because everybody is, is the same. So it's easy to poison people with the abundance of information. Do you see any echoes of that strategy of attacking the very concept of truth going on in the United States? Oh, absolutely. So uh, it seems to me that now they already succeeded in uh, in spreading doubts among American public. Uh, it's more about the partisanship than about facts. If uh, one third of American public is not sure whether to believe a special prosecutor or Russia Today, that's already a big victory for Kremlin. When I say rush today, of course, we can cite American media outlets that simply repeating the RT's stories. It's hard now to convince people pointing at facts. That's a big victory of Putin's propaganda machine. Is this a clever strategy? Because at base, many people, they want to believe what they want to believe. And they have you know, an inclination towards a particular belief. And so if you provide them with something that they hope to be true, they'll believe it? Or is it something different from that? You're right. The natural instincts of people who are addicted to certain political views to stick with with their heroes, and uh, if you feed them with the information that uh, that satisfies their interest about the outside world, they can buy it. While you have partisans on both sides, there are many people in the middle, and I think Putin's propaganda is most effective for this middle because it's about doubts. You don't want these people to actually uh, look at the facts and take them at a face value. You want them to doubt. You once said about Vladimir Putin, you said Vladimir Putin is a strong leader in the same way that arsenic is a strong drink. Absolutely. What do you mean by that? I think it's calling a dictator, a strong leader, it's first, it's it's disrespect for for the people who are suffering under his rule. And also from my knowledge of history tells me that the end of any dictatorship is bitter for any country. So at the end of at the end of the rule of this strong so-called strong leader, you have poisonous minds, you have normally ruined country, and then you need democratic institutions, a republic, to repair the damage. But do you think he's a strong leader? And the reason I ask is we had your friend Bill Browder on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the death of Sergei Magnitsky, among uh, other things. And when I asked him whether or not Putin was a strong 
leader or not. He says he's a he's something like he's a small, weak man. So is he strong in any sense or is he smart in any sense? When we talk about Vladimir Putin today, we have to realize that uh, whether we call him strong leader, and I disagree, or just today we follow with another extreme, with Bill's comments about him being a weak man uh, who is just uh, uh, looking for every opportunity to prove that he is not weak. But he doesn't operate in a vacuum. Vladimir Putin looks strong because the opposition is weak. Because for years, we saw no political will in the free world to confront Vladimir Putin when you could prove his weakness. And uh, Putin knows, I wonder whether from books or more likely uh, from his instincts, that dictator can make many mistakes except one. He cannot afford to look weak. So that's why it's all about an image, not being invincible, but looking invincible. And that's why Putin does absolutely everything to demonstrate that he could be the strongest leader in the world by defying the United States, by defying the European Union, by pushing his agenda. And he knows that even some relatively small victories could be turned into a major demonstration of his invincibility. But this idea that you're referring to of, of a dictator not able to allow himself to look weak doesn't that apply to every kind of leader, a president, a senator, a governor? What, what leader can afford to look weak? Now, you know, when we talk about democracies, like in this country, I mean, we know that we have elections. If you look weak, you can lose elections, but it's a natural process. Image can be, by the way, tested by the facts. So some people can argue that facts are not facts, but still you have results. You, you have free press. If some press tells that the leader is invincible you always have the opposite press that will, will uh, tell you that the king is naked. Even if you deal with Politburo rule, like communist dictatorship, you still had certain rules within the group of the Politburo members, the, 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 the top communist leaders. They had to negotiate, look for some balance, and there were certain rules, not that I approve this, 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 kind, of, this kind of rule, but, but there were uh, rules of succession and uh, they could conspire against each other, but they, they had an interest of preserving the system. Now, one-man dictatorship is the most unstable and dangerous form of government. It's all about one man. Everything depends on his image, his strengths. The entire system of checks and balances built around him, it's far more dangerous and unstable than uh, any other form of dictatorship where you have some groups, like even, even the most egregious groups, uh, mafia groups, negotiating with each other. It's about one man, and we know from history that when everything was concentrated just around one man. So we ended up with, with the greatest disasters. So there are various strategies of dealing with dictatorships, and America has obviously national interests, and over time, America has dealt with Russia and the, the previous Soviet Union in different ways. And you've been critical, not just of Donald Trump, but also of the way that the Obama administration dealt with Putin and Russia. Let me quote something to you. You said, I think speaking about the reset that the Obama administration advocated with respect to Russia... You said what Obama did out of naivete and misguided ideology, Trump may do seeking profit. But both Obama and Trump enjoy announcing big deals and prioritize the illusion of success over the real thing. Why did you say that? In fact, in my book, Winter is Coming, I uh, looked at the earlier presidencies. So I talked about Bill Clinton and Bush 43. Um, and my argument was that since the end of the Cold War, America had no strategy 
long-term strategy to make the difference, to change the world. Since World War II, from Truman's administration to Ronald Reagan's administration, there was a certain consistency. There was a policy. Yeah, there were, there were changes, but within, within the range. You had Democrats and Republicans recognizing there was an existential enemy. And it's probably it's quite symbolic that the institutions built by Harry Truman, by a Democrat, like CIA, NATO, National Security Council, and many others, they led to the victory in the Cold War and the Republican president. Since 1991, it was more like a pendulum. There was no strategy, so that's why Bill Clinton did little, George W. did too much, Obama did almost nothing. But is there, no strategy? But is there no strategy because all of a sudden the Iron Curtain fell but that's, and they didn't know what the strategy it, should it, be? Absolutely. What but should it be? Let's, let's first discuss it because uh, we all made mistakes. And I, I, I can confess that in 1992, I was, I was also reading the end of history of, of Francis Fukuyama with just, you know, with, with great joy because we all expected that that's, that was the end of history. Uh, let's celebrate. Let's just look in the future with great expectations. But history is not linear. It goes in cycles. It rhymes. And it, yes. And also the evil doesn't die. It could be buried for a while on the rubble of Berlin Wall. But the moment we lose our vigilance, it can sprout out. Going back to 1991-92, we now have to recognize that when one chapter of history is, is closed, so we have to think about new plan. And the uh, United States was and still is the leader of the free world, the most powerful country in the world. And it has to come up with an idea. What is next? Because if you don't offer that, vacuum doesn't stay for too long. Then vacuum is being filled. And you have Putin's, Iranian mullahs, North Korean regime, China. You have all sorts of thugs and terrorists and, and dictators that will benefit from America's absence. Because America's absence in world arena means that someone else will start coming up with an agenda. But this is not a long-term agenda. This is an agenda that is counterproductive for, the fu- for our future, future of humanity, because it's all based on immediate benefits for these players. And these benefits are just, you know, um, they're not strategic and uh, they're achieved at the great expense of people in these countries, but even for us here. So you've established and argued pretty persuasively that there hasn't been a, a good strategy for dealing with There was no, no strategy, Russia. period. It's no strategy, period. Good. Okay. So the absence of a strategy. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's suppose your Secretary of State... Actually, let's not suppose that. Secretary of State apparently doesn't have any power authority anymore. Let's, uh, let's suppose you're the President of the United States. I, I was not born here, so... But <laughs> I, nor, nor was I. Nor was I. Um, you are charged with figuring out what the strategy should be with Russia going forward, given the history... And I know we can't solve this on a podcast, but what's your best sense of how we should deal with Russia? I hear it all the time that, okay, what's now? What's now? We made mistakes. What's now? As a professional chess player... It's not a bad question. No, no, no. No, absolutely. (laughs) But as a professional player, I see that we just... Before we make new moves, we have to just recognize mistakes we made. So it's very important. You analyze the games. You recognize what went wrong. So how can you improve it? And then you come up with, with a plan. The very important part of any plan is just to recognize that the results cannot be achieved while myself, you, whoever, is in the office. This is a big mistake because when you look at the politicians, whether in this country or across the Atlantic, they all look for immediate benefits. So how can I get something out of this plan? Now, going back to the end of the uh, World War II, so you have to come up with a plan that may work in 10 years. It's very important that we'll, we'll get consensus that certain plans will not work instantly. And most likely, the benefits can be uh, ripe by 
people that will follow you, even if you don't like them, because elections could bring other people in the office. If we have to deal with, I would say, existential threat, it's not the same as the Soviet Union, but it's still existential because it's even more dangerous to the very foundation of democracy. Because Putin and other thugs and terrorists, they know that they can survive only if they, if they can erode the base of the free world. So that's why we recognize that whether we like it or not, in the globalized economy, we are empowering our enemies with technology invented here in the free world that they use very skillfully to undermine the very foundation of the free world. So it's a long story, but we have to recognize that we are at war. We don't like it, but we are at war because the only way for these guys to survive is to be in the confrontation with us. They cannot compete with us uh, in productivity, in innovations, in social services, but they have one strategic advantage over us. They don't care about human lives. So for us, a loss of one life is, is tragic. For them, killing a million, it's a demonstration of their strengths. So we just have to recognize that it's time to utilize our resources because unlike in, in the 40s or even earlier, we now, for the free world, have the overwhelming military, economic, and even cultural and social advantage. How we use it, how we invest uh, our capital in the future. And I think it's very important that it starts here in the United States because America should come up with a bright vision of the future. We just have to excite people about the, this, this vision. If you don't excite young people with some kind of projects, ideas, then you have Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and, and other groups. Status quo always loses to dynamic ideology, even if this ideology is very unhuman and heinous. I want to talk about two entanglements with respect to Trump and Putin, potentially. One is, at the end of 2016, when Obama was still president, but Trump had been elected, the Obama administration decided to engage in some sanction of Russia because of interference with the election. And they took some actions against Russian diplomats. And am I right that your expectation was, and most experts' expectations were, that in retaliation for what Obama did, Putin would then retaliate in return? Um, that was a normal practice of the Cold War. And uh, uh, that would be normal. But that didn't happen. Exactly. And, that, and that's why not do normal. You think, why do you think? That's not normal. That's, yeah. this, this, people should realize that for Putin to stop Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, of doing it after it was announced, by the way, Russian foreign ministry already announced that they would mirror American actions. And do what? No, just expel the same number of diplomats. So it's, just, it's something accepted throughout the Cold War. And for Putin today, not to do the same, so just to, uh, to not to respond to American hostility uh, by not expelling uh, American diplomats, uh, instead of inviting kids of these diplomats to a Christmas tree celebration in Kremlin, that was a show of weakness. Does, right. So that's Does that make him... That is unless, the exact opposite unless, of all these unless, things we've been discussing. Unless he had something much bigger in mind. So for Putin to look weak uh, means, just for me, it's, it's, that he had something else. He had, he had, he, he calculated that he could uh, be compensated with a much bigger uh, victory. And the only explanation is that he expected Trump to rewind this order. And the reason he believed it was the uh, Michael Flynn called Russian ambassador when I think he reassured Russian ambassador that uh, Trump administration would uh, 
would um, not honor Obama's actions. You don't think it was a promise of a weekend at Mar-a-Lago? It was something much bigger. What is important is that Vladimir Putin believed Michael Flynn. So to me... I'm sorry, but when you say we don't have any evidence... No, but he called. ...that Michael Flynn said that thing. No, no, it's the... Look... I agree. Okay, so we are just you know if if we follow the we're allowed Saudi, to speculate the on the podcast. That's no, no, okay. We can we but speculating is what we know that is Vladimir Putin stopped Russian foreign minister of doing what everybody expected him to do to expel the equal number of American diplomats. Even what America it, expected him to it, do. Everybody expected. So uh, that's already that's that's not just showing weakness but also undermining one of his uh, most trustful cronies who just followed the the, the protocol now. We also know that Michael Flynn spoke to Russian ambassador. We don't know what he said, but he, he spoke to Russian ambassador. So I'm trying to connect these dots. You may call it speculation. So what I believe happened is Michael Flynn asked Russian ambassador to pass the message to Kremlin that the new administration would go back to normal. And I think he begged him not to retaliate because that would give Trump sort of a better opportunity to show his, his friendship. I see no other explanation why on earth Vladimir Putin uh, made this decision and extended this uh, the olive branch to to America by inviting American kids to a Christmas tree in, in, in Kremlin. Right. Do you think Vladimir Putin regrets his decision to stay the hand of Lavrov in retaliating? No. I, again, Putin played this game. Uh, I think uh, the story proves to me, so it's you, you may call it speculation, uh, that uh, they had already many contacts with Michael Flynn, and they trusted his authority to convince Trump to reverse the order. Whether Flynn acted under Trump's instructions or not, it doesn't matter. I think what is important is, as long as I understand the Putin psychology, he believed that Michael Flynn had acted on behalf of Trump. And Putin expected, as, by the way, Russian propaganda machine expected Trump to perform and to rebuild relations with Russia. This may be an unfair question, and I know we're speculating about what happened in that conversation with Michael Flynn and the staying of the hand on retaliation. But on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you in your theory? Ten. 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 Well, that's certainty. No, it's certainty because <laughs> that's no uh, longer yeah, speculation. Look, on your part. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm I'm here. Just you know, I can I can afford to speculate. But Putin is a rational man. So this is when you look at what he does. In this case, it's there's no other explanation that Putin believed that he had to show this mercy and being gracious because something big was coming. And if you go back and just you look at what Russian propaganda said about Trump, and by the way, what they're still saying about Trump, even despite the fact that America is arch enemy, it's 24-7 America's bashing propaganda all over the place, they always separate Donald Trump and the deep state. Right. So... The, the only criticism of Trump you can hear on Russian television is that, that he's weak and he cannot tame this deep state that is preventing a good guy to Donald Trump to improve relations with Russia. And I think that Putin had a dream that maybe they could bring Trump to Crimea and just to have the another, maybe not big three, but big two now, scene of 1945 Yalta dividing the world. So I think that was, that was Putin's master plan. He expected that with Michael Flynn as national security advisor, that they could they could succeed. I mentioned that there were two entanglements between Trump and Russia that I wanted to talk about. The second one, this other entanglement, has to do with Trump's tax returns. 
And there's been a lot of talk during the course of the campaign and since uh, of people being upset that Donald Trump broke with tradition and norms of campaigning and didn't release his tax returns. Here's what you said about that. You said, quote, I'm troubled by Trump's refusal to share his tax returns. In 2008, he was saved from bankruptcy by an influx of foreign money. And we have good reason to suggest that the money, most of this money, came from Russia and Russian oligarchs, close quote. And you think the tax returns might show that. Explain your belief there. Naturally, Trump had relations with um, foreign money. According to his own son, a lot of this money came from Russia during this crisis, 2008, 2009. We know that Russian oligarchs, as oligarchs from other places, uh, they were always looking for a sort of the best schemes to launder money. And real estate was the most uh, trusted algorithm of uh, siphoning money from one country to another. Obviously, a lot of money could change hands, but with real estate, you can put any price tag. And then it's, it's very hard to prove uh, any wrongdoings. It seems to me that uh, Trump empire was an ideal target for Russian oligarchs or ideal partner for Russian oligarchs to channel money to the United States. And since Trump's own son bragged about it, so I, I believe that uh, it did take place, these transactions, these multi-million dollar transactions took place. Unless we see his tax returns, it will be very hard to prove the scope of the operation. For me, the problem is it's how much. It's not whether it took place. Right. Do you think that the reason Donald Trump has refused to, re- to release his tax returns is this? I mean, probably the other things as well, but I'm sure uh, there were many operations that could uh, show that uh, he was not uh, very scrupulous with tax regulations. Here is pure speculation. I've, I, I don't on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a lower number. It's a much lower number. Okay. But if he was as rich as he claimed he was, and he is, and uh, he's, all, all these operations, these, the, uh, the money transfers, the real estate uh, deals, they were as clean as he claims they were. So why not? So if he was so adamant of doing something which could hurt his image, because he's very, uh, he's very protective of the image. And I think he knew, he knows that uh, his refusal to release taxes was hurting him. So that means that he had very serious reasons. Yeah, some greater interest. Exactly. So given my prior job, I looked at your arrest record, and you were in fact arrested. <laughs> Am I correct? Yes. In 2012? Uh, yeah, also two thousand. Yeah, a few times. Well, let's last, talk about the two thousand. You know, it's a long rap yeah, sheet. I know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the two thousand twelve arrest. You were arrested at a protest. Yes. Tell us what Actually, happened. Actually, it was not a protest. You know, it's the. <laughs> I was arrested several times at protest uh, actions, but in two thousand twelve, I was on my way to the courtroom where they had to uh, read the verdict for Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot. For, yes. who, right. So I was just. And it was the same. It was the same courtroom where they had a verdict for Khodorkovsky. So that's why I knew where it was. So I just arrived from my summer vacations, and I was just walking there. There was no protest. All I wanted is just to get into the room, just to to sit there and just to. It's kind of moral. So what law did you break? What law did you break? No, I, I no no law. I mean, it's just I had so many journalists just you know, surrounding me. The moment I was just taken away. Uh, and dragged by six of the right police officers into the car. I was talking to a Radio Liberty correspondent. It's just, thanks God, you know, there were so many videos that showed that I broke no laws and it was just you know, attacked all of a sudden by the right police because they got an instruction. So, oh, it's just 
take this guy away. Um, Do you think it was instruction directly relating uh, to you? Get get no, no, just, that's, that's what's always ha- happened in Russia and still happens. So there's you had typically you have the KGB guys, so the the secret police guys in the crowd. They give instructions who to be arrested. I don't know why they wanted this conflict. Just no idea. So, but they just, just took me away, uh, and then I tried to run away, and then just, just I was beaten. And then they tried to charge me for attacking an officer, biting his. So the good did news... You bite, did you bite an officer, sir? No, I didn't. I was, you know, for 20 seconds uh, that I was, you know, I was lying on the floor. So I didn't even have time to, to open my mouth for any actions. Now, the good thing is that because there were so many cameras, they actually, you know, some journalists actually found, you know, just it's in this picture, in the pictures he made, so that the, this officer that allegedly was was beaten, he actually had this uh, this cut on his finger ten minutes before. So that says so good for instant replay. It's no, very no, it's, helpful. It's, yeah, it's good for it. And also each of these twenty to twenty one or twenty two seconds of me just, you know, just being dragged by police and beaten. So they were recorded from different angles, but it was two thousand twelve. If if the same happened today. Nobody, who cares? So this is, I would be, I would end up in jail for five because years for attacking police officer uh, who was in uniform and uh, in active duty. So you think that the justice system, such as it is in Russia, has deteriorated that much from 2012 to 2017? It's all about justice system because it was already ruined. It's about the instructions from the government because it, the end of the justice system actually, you know, could could be demonstrated. My first arrest in 2007 where they, they arrested me, uh, again, just they did nothing illegal. And then they had a police officer testifying who didn't see me at all, who was actually, who couldn't even mention the place and the time of my arrest. And then the judge who was, uh, was hearing the case, she said, look, I trust police officer, not videos, not audios, not uh, witnesses. Trust him because he's wearing the uniform. So since 2007 in Putin's Russia, no matter how much evidence you can bring, you know, with videos, with other witnesses, it's all about police officer who has the final word. Do you miss Russia? Look, I, uh, I would like to come back just to visit my mother, uh, so just have a few friends. I don't think I will go back to live there because I have my home here. I have my kids here in New York. But I think it's important for me just to, to feel free to come back and to help my country just to go back to normal because I believe that the future of Russia could have vital importance for the future of humanity because if Russia keeps deteriorating and creating more problems, the price we all pay could be too high. So I hope, I dream that there will be one day when Russia, instead of being the permanent source of the problem, will become the uh, rational solution for our problems. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time here. Thank you. this is the part of the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me. And this week, it has to do again with the FBI and the way that the president of the United States denigrated his own FBI like he has his intelligence services over the past several months. And it upset me because I have worked with the FBI and I admire the FBI. And as I said in the special episode on Monday, no institution is perfect. None. I'm not aware of any. And no institution is devoid of people who are doing the wrong thing. But the overall mission of the FBI and the vast, vast, vast majority of people in the FBI who undertake to protect us while putting themselves in harm's way deserves respect, not disdain. And I was disappointed, like a lot of people were, 
when in the face of the president's unfair criticism of the FBI as a whole, people didn't step up and defend the Bureau. And when you're a part of an organization, you look to your leaders. Obviously, everyone looks to the words of the president as a representative of the country. But when your own storied institution, like the FBI, I think is, it has had problems in the past and will always be struggling to make sure that it's fair and equitable to everybody. But it's a storied institution. And when it comes under attack, you would expect the people who are responsible for leading the institution and for making sure morale is high and making sure that they recruit the best people would say something in defense of their own troops. And I think over the weekend, I I sent a couple of tweets where I asked the question, where's the attorney general of the United States, who's the putative head of the FBI, you know, above the FBI director? And so far, I've not heard that he has said anything at all, which I find to be a deafening silence and a sign of poor leadership. I also asked the question, has the new FBI director, Chris Wray, said anything? And I was pleased to see, reported in the New York Times a couple of days ago, that Chris Ray, who I think to be an honorable person and whose appointment as FBI director, a lot of people applauded, including my friend Sally Yates. I did as well. Chris Ray, the current director of the FBI, said, among other things, how truly an honor it was to represent the people of the FBI, how inspired he was by example after example of professionalism and dedication to justice demonstrated around the Bureau. And it may not seem like a lot to people outside, but a message like that from a leader of an institution that is under attack, even by the President of the United States, does say something about, I think, the institution and something about the director. So I just wanted to acknowledge and thank the current FBI director for saying the right thing to his people in the face of a lot of nonsense. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Gary Kasparov, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners discover the show. Send me your questions about news and politics, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. Don't forget to check out cafe.com slash stay tuned for transcripts of all of these interviews. The show is produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.